You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Capital One sustains a major data breach affecting 106 million customers, and a suspect is in custody thanks largely to her incautious online boasting. Iranian social engineers are fishing in LinkedIn, baiting the hook with a bogus job offer. Wind River fixes VxWorks bugs. Network-attached storage is being brute-forced. And a hacker claims to have doxed members of the Los Angeles Police Department. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 30th, 2019. Data associated with about 106 million credit card users and applicants, mostly in the United States and Canada, were exposed in a breach said to have been committed by a Seattle-area woman, Paige A. Thompson. Capital One says that the compromised data include names, addresses, zip code, postal codes, phone numbers, email addresses, dates of birth, and self-reported income. Also exposed were customer status data, credit scores, credit limits, balances, payment history, contact information, and fragments of transaction data from a total of 23 days during 2016, 2017, and 2018. A more limited set of U.S. Social Security numbers, about 140,000, Canadian Social Insurance numbers, about a million, and linked bank account numbers of credit card customers, roughly 80,000, were also taken. Ms. Thompson was arrested yesterday on a charge of computer fraud and abuse. She is alleged to have gained access to Capital One customer data between March 12th and July 17th of this year. Her point of entry is said to have been a misconfigured firewall, the Wall Street Journal said. The Department of Justice says that Capital One was warned on July 17th by a GitHub user who'd noticed that their customer data had turned up on GitHub. Capital One had stored the data in AWS, and various reports have noted that Ms. Thompson is a former Amazon employee, last working there in 2016, but Amazon Web Services do not appear to have been implicated in the breach. This was quick work by law enforcement, the Washington Post notes. Federal investigators found their task simplified by Ms. Thompson's online boasting. If convicted, she faces up to five years imprisonment and a $250,000 fine. In the press release disclosing the breach, Capital One summarized the financial costs it expects to incur. Quote, We expect the incident to generate incremental costs of approximately $100 to $150 million in 2019. Expected costs are largely driven by customer notifications, credit monitoring, technology costs, and legal support. Quote, 
Capital One shares dropped some 3% in after-hours trading upon the news. Iran's APT34 has been particularly busy on LinkedIn, which security firm Nobefore says has become a leading venue for social engineering attacks. FireEye researchers note that APT34 is particularly interested in the oil, gas, energy, utility, and governmental sectors, and that they're posing as the research staff at University of Cambridge. The fish bait is a job offer. If you take the bait, you'll be asked to complete a form, which unfortunately will also open a back door in your system. The particular malware used in this attack is called tone-deaf. Wind River has addressed 11 zero-day flaws in its VxWorks product. VxWorks is used in over 2 billion industrial, medical, and enterprise devices. Armis Labs, which discovered and disclosed the flaws to Wind River, calls VxWorks the most widely used operating system you may never have heard of. Six of the zero days were critical remote code execution flaws, according to Armis Labs' report. When you are online going about your business, how do you know if the other individuals you're interacting with are actual flesh-and-blood humans or maybe bots? And if they are bots, is that necessarily a bad thing? The CyberWire's Tamika Smith looked into that question. This month, California became the first state to create a law that curtails the power that bots have. It essentially requires that they reveal that they are artificial in two instances, influencing a voter and selling a product. Here to talk more about this new law is Noam Cohen. He's the author of The Know-It-Alls, The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball. Welcome to the program, Noam. Oh, thanks, Tamika. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. You recently wrote an article for The New Yorker titled, Will California's New Bot Law Strengthen Democracy? I want to get straight into this and start with regulating bots. In your article, you talk about how it should be low-hanging fruit when it comes to improving how we use the Internet. However, when the senator from California decided that he wanted to explore creating this law, he found out that it wasn't as easy as he thought it would be. Totally. Yeah. And when I say low-hanging fruit, what I meant is that, like, you know, a bot isn't a person. So you could see that it's kind of complicated to say, hey— you're saying something that's hateful. You shouldn't be allowed to be on Twitter, right? Our president, you know, says things that are abusive, but he's still on Twitter. It's complicated. These are bigger issues. I, I have opinions on them. But I thought, and I think the senator, right, Hertzberg, thought that a bot would be pretty easy. We can all agree that if it's this computer that's pretending to be a person and is like getting, you know, being uh, annoying or manipulative or harassing and just sort of, you know, thousands of these same, these computer programs saying the same thing over and over again, lock her up or send them back. They, we could agree that that's like not good. Low-hanging fruit. We should, it shouldn't be much complicated about it at all. So that's, I think, what he thought and what you, anyone might think. We're not even dealing with how to deal with the tough questions of people who are abusive and on this platform, but just even machines that are. And then what I'm saying, what, what he discovered is that there is such an extreme kind of libertarian view in Silicon Valley that basically they raised all these issues about bots that you wouldn't even think of, like that bots actually are kind of like people speaking. You're like, really? Why? It seems like it's just a computer saying the same thing over and over again. But it's like, well, a, a person wrote it uh, and it's conveying ideas or maybe it's an experiment. They were they had all these kind of theories that like maybe a bot is exploring the idea of what we think of bots. And so if it's identified as a bot, we won't have the ability to look at it and see, you know, see how it goes, that kind of thing. So Some people uh, would think that would be pretty extreme. Right. They, that These kind of interpretations. But yet they basically did 
forced the uh, state senator to really reevaluate in how to write the law. And he backed off a lot. It's, it, it didn't require the the sites to block them themselves. That's what he really was hoping would, would happen, that they would block them themselves. They would they would agree that we shouldn't have bots on our platform and we're going to be responsible for getting them off of the platform. But that was kind of, they argued and lobbied so effectively it got taken out of legislation. As I'm processing this, I'm mm-hmm. thinking that when California State Senator Robert Hertzberg decided mm-hmm. he wanted to embark on this journey, mm-hmm. he tapped into something, tapped into something very huge. And that's probably mm-hmm. why Silicon Valley responded the way that they did. The um, gentleman you mentioned in your article, yeah. John uh, Perry Barlow, the sure. founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, sure. he wrote something in his uh, Declaration <laughs> of Independence of Cyberspace in 1996. Mm-hmm. In your article, it's quoted, you have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement. We have true reason to fear. What right. do you think he's saying there? What is he tapping so, into? And this is like, you know, this is a, something I've thought a lot about. It's kind of like maybe the original of the Internet. It's this fiction that, if we're even calling it right, for the longest time, when I was a reporter at the Times, I would write Electronic Freedom Foundation. I was like, that's, and, and you know, it's actually called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I think I even made an error in the paper of that because it's so weird. Like, what is it, a frontier? What do you mean? I know they're about electronic freedom, right? But they kind of see the frontier as like the West, the Wild West, what that quote saying, like, right, you and your laws don't apply to us. I think in that case, he's kind of saying, we're so much smarter than you. We're, we're hackers. You can't even, you couldn't even discipline us if you wanted to. You couldn't even tell us to shut up because you don't even know how to, how to like stop us from communicating via the internet because we're brilliant computer scientists and you're a bunch of idiot bureaucrats. So I think that view is, you, know, you see to this day, that making fun of, of public workers and, and of, of like representatives and how they don't know anything about tech and that arrogance. So I think it had that aspect that we're in our own world. You can't reach us. But I think the thing I've always really felt bad, you know, felt has gotten wrong is that I actually wrote this in a, a book review, a book called uh, The Player's Ball about the West, the Wild West idea. Is that like, you know, the West was conquered by killing the natives, right? You know, killing Native Americans and like, you know, uh, obviously slavery built the country, all these original sins of our country. And it's like this myth that like, the, it's just the Wild West and there's no history, no rules. So, you know, not recognizing that when the internet isn't fair, it's going to play out that women and minorities are not going to be able to speak as much. So they can think it's like, hey, it's just freedom. And, but it's actually freedom really is allowing the majority to oppress the minority. So what do you think is the step forward? Do you think California, as your article poses, do you think mm-hmm. the rest of the nation is going to look at California's new law and say, OK, we can start here? I really hope so. I do think they can see. I think it's a good basic rule to say that, like, bots should identify themselves. You shouldn't trick people into thinking that there are that they are people. When you're talking to a person, you're actually talking to a bot that's actually trying to make maybe demoralize you. Right. That's also what bots can try to do. They can try to make you feel bad by saying negative things or to trick you or to, to give you false information. So I do think it's like it is starting the conversation. And I think that's really important. I do think that probably the way it's going to have to play out is that these big companies have to be broken up because I think they are just too powerful and too, like the article said, they're going to be too resistant to change. And I don't think it's a good system. I think we need more kind of democracy among the companies almost and among the platforms. So I hope that's the way it'll go. But I think it's a really good first step to ask hard questions about how the Internet runs. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Thanks very much. I hope it was helpful. Great. Noam Cohen, he's the author of The Know-It-Alls, The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball. He writes for The New Yorker and has a regular column with Wired Magazine. 
That is our own Tamika Smith reporting. Synology has warned its users to protect themselves against a ransomware campaign that's hitting its network-attached storage product. The attackers are brute-forcing admin credentials in a coordinated series of dictionary attacks. While Synology has been out front with its warning, Naked Security reports that they're not the only NAS vendor whose products are affected. Indeed, the attack does not exploit any specific flaw in any NAS system. It's after credentials, and that's not a systemic problem. And finally, a self-proclaimed hacker has told the Los Angeles Police Department he's got data on some 2,500 police officers and about 17,000 recruits, according to Information Security magazine. NBC4 Los Angeles says the police union is very unhappy. The incident remains under investigation. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Uh, Ben, it's always great to have you back. Uh, We had a story come by from The Atlantic. Uh, It's titled, Mass Surveillance is Coming to a City Near You. This actually sort of revisits something you and I have talked about in the past. Bring us up to date here. Yeah, so this is about aerial surveillance. Uh, This technology that was referenced in this article was actually used uh, here in Baltimore City in 2016 as part of a pilot program place a plane in the sky over the city and get real-time access to people's movements, uh, aerial surveillance that can uh, that you can zoom in to the level of a city block, an individual house, a street, uh, etc. This is something that obviously presents major civil liberties concerns. There's this legal concept called the plain view doctrine, where if you exhibit some sort of behavior in plain view that violates the law, 
you've lost your expectation of privacy and the government can arrest you based on what they've seen in plain view. Mm-hmm. There was a case where a, a government surveillance plane caught somebody growing marijuana in his own backyard. As long as the technology being used by law enforcement is something that's relatively widely available. That's where I think the legal question will be really crystallized in this case. Because this technology is so new, people who are walking around Baltimore City or any other city where this technology has been deployed aren't necessarily going to be aware that this type of technology exists. And thus, they won't be able to comport their own behavior to the fact that there's constant, persistent surveillance that's tracking our every movement. It requires almost no resources for law enforcement to use, you know, to press the rewind button on hours and hours of aerial surveillance footage as opposed to what they used to do, which is send a cop outside someone's house and actually follow the guy Mm -hmm. um, and see if he's committed any crimes. Not to mention, it just feels weird and uncomfortable for people to know that they're being tracked in real time by an airplane 24 hours a day in information that's stored and can be searched by law enforcement. I think that's just a very uncomfortable conclusion that uh, is just going to start settling in for people. I can't help wondering, I mean, what about if we put this behind uh, the requirement for a warrant? In other words, go ahead and gather all this stuff up, but if a police department wants to go in and look at someone, they've got to convince a judge first. I mean, I think that would be the the best way to ensure the legality of something like this, because then you wouldn't run into whether this actually falls under the plain view doctrine. The problem is you may not be able to establish probable cause for a warrant unless you had access to some of this aerial surveillance. So let's say you had an, a, a, an inkling, but something below probable cause that somebody committed a robbery. You may need to actually get access to the surveillance to know whether that person left their house that day, went to the, the store that was robbed, et cetera, et cetera. And what law enforcement is going to say is, we're trying to conduct an investigation. We don't have enough information to obtain a warrant. We would like access to the surveillance to see if we can connect this person with a crime. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I can see why that potentially could be compelling to, to jurisdictions like Baltimore City that have major violent and nonviolent crime problems. Yeah, I, I can really see the appeal to law enforcement, obviously, because let's say you, you had some sort of robbery at a store or something, the, the ability to go to the time of that robbery and then basically run everything in reverse and track back every vehicle that, that came to that place back to wherever they started from. Well, boy, that's a powerful law enforcement tool. It is. I mean, you know, you just take normal blue light surveillance cameras and multiply it by the entire city. Um, So it's an extremely effective law enforcement tool. Um, But yeah, I mean, we've talked about so many of the potentials for for abuse. One thing that this article talks about is even though you think, well, you know, they can't this database of information that's being collected through aerial surveillance is so vast. No one's going to search, you know you as an individual because they're just not going to have the time and resources to do it. But through machine learning, it's possible and artificial intelligence, it's possible that the system can start to understand various patterns, mm-hmm. you know, where gang activity is located, where certain people are hanging out at certain times. And that information, you know, is much easier to deduce without conducting searches of hundreds of thousands, the whereabouts of hundreds of thousands of, of individuals. And it could have the same uh, effects on, on personal privacy. Hmm. 
All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.